This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray. Chapter 10 A hundred miles from the haunts most familiar with Duane's deeds, far up where the Nooses ran a trickling clear stream between yellow cliffs, stood a small, deserted shack of covered mesquite poles. It had been made long ago, but was well preserved. A door faced the overgrown trail, and another faced down into a gorge of dense thickets. On the border, fugitives from law and men who hid in fear of someone they had wronged never lived in houses with only one door. It was a wild spot, lonely, not fit for human habitation except for the outcast. He, perhaps, might have found it hard to leave for most of the other wild nooks in that barren country. Down in the gorge there was never-failing sweet water, grass all the year round, cool, shady retreats, deer, rabbits, turkeys, fruit, and miles and miles of narrow twisting, deep canyons fill of broken rocks and impenetrable thickets. The scream of the panther was heard there, the squall of the wildcat, the cough of the jaguar. Innumerable bees buzzed in the spring blossoms, and, it seemed, scattered honey to the winds. All day there was continuous song of birds, that of the mockingbird loud and sweet and mocking above the rest. On clear days, and rare indeed were cloudy days, with the subsiding of the wind at sunset, a hush seemed to fall around the little hut. Far distant dim blue mountains stood gold-rimmed gradually to fade with the shading of light. At this quiet hour a man climbed up out of the gorge and sat in the westward door of the hut. This lonely watcher of the west and listener to the silence was Duane, and this hut was the one where, three years before, Jenny had nursed him back to life. The killing of a man named Sellers, and the combination of circumstances that had made the tragedy a memorable regret, had marked, if not a change, at least a cessation in Duane's activities. He had trailed Sellers to kill him for the supposed abducting of Jenny. He had trailed him long after he had learned Sellers travelled alone. Duane wanted absolute assurance of Jenny's death. Vague rumours, a few words here and there, unauthenticated stories, were all Duane had gathered in years to substantiate his belief that Jenny died shortly after the beginning of her second captivity. But Duane did not know surely. Sellers might have told him. Duane expected, if not to force it from him at the end, to read it in his eyes. But the bullet went too unerringly. It locked his lips and fixed his eyes. After that meeting Duane lay long at the ranch-house of a friend, and when he recovered from the wound Sellers had given him, he started with two horses and a pack for the lonely gorge on the Nooses. There he had been hidden for months, a prey to remorse, a dreamer, a victim of phantoms. It took work for him to find subsistence in that rocky fastness, and work, action, helped to pass the hours, but he could not work all the time, even if he had found it to do. Then in his idle moments, and at night, his task was to live with the hell in his mind. The sun set, and the twilight hour made all the rest bearable. 
The little hut on the rim of the gorge seemed to hold Jenny's presence. It was not as if he felt her spirit. If it had been, he would have been sure of her death. He hoped Jenny had not survived her second misfortune, and that intense hope had burned into belief, if not surety. Upon his return to that locality, on the occasion of his first visit to the hut, he had found things just as they had left them, and a poor, faded piece of ribbon Jenny had used to tie around her bright hair. No wandering outlaw or traveller had happened upon the lonely spot, which further endeared it to Duane. A strange feature of this memory of Jenny was the freshness of it, the failure of years, toil, strife, death-dealing to dim it, to deaden the thought of what might have been. He had a marvellous gift of visualization. He could shut his eyes and see Jenny before him just as clearly as if she had stood there in the flesh. For hours he did that, dreaming, dreaming of life he had never tasted, and now never would taste. He saw Jenny's slender, graceful figure, the old brown, ragged dress in which he had seen her first at Bland's, her little feet in Mexican sandals, her fine hands coarsened by work, her round arms and swelling throat, and her pale, sad, beautiful face with its staring dark eyes. He remembered every look she had given him, every word she had spoken to him, every time she had touched him. He thought of her beauty and sweetness, of the few things which had come to mean to him that she must have loved him, and he trained himself to think of these in preference to her life at Bland's, the escape with him, and then her recapture, because such memories led to bitter, fruitless pain. He had to fight suffering because it was eating out his heart. Sitting there, eyes wide open, he dreamed of the old homestead and his white-haired mother. He saw the old home life, sweetened and filled by dear new faces and added joys, go on before his eyes with him a part of it. Then, in the inevitable reaction, in the reflux of bitter reality, he would send out a voiceless cry, no less poignant because it was silent. Poor fool! No, I shall never see mother again. Never go home. Never have a home. I am Duane, the lone wolf. Oh, God! I wish it were over. These dreams torture me. What have I to do with a mother, a home, a wife? No bright-haired boy, no dark-eyed girl will ever love me. I am an outlaw, an outcast, dead to the good and decent world. I am alone, alone. Better be a callous brute, or better dead. I shall go mad thinking. Man, what is left to you? A hiding place like a wolf's. Lonely silent days, lonely nights with phantoms or the trail and the road with their bloody tracks, and then the hard ride, the sleepless, hungry ride to some hole in rocks or breaks. What hellish thing drives me? Why can't I end it all? What is left? Only that damned unquenchable spirit of the gunfighter to live, to hang on to miserable life, to have no fear of death, yet to cling like a leech, to die as gunfighters seldom die, with boots off. Bane, you were first, and you're long avenged. 
I'd change with you. And Sellers, you were last, and you're avenged. And you others, you're avenged. Lie quiet in your graves and give me peace. But they did not lie quiet in their graves and give him peace. A group of specters trooped out of the shadows of dusk and, gathering round him, escorted him to his bed. When Duane had been riding the trails passion-bent to escape pursuers, or passion-bent in his search, the constant action and toil and exhaustion made him sleep. But when in hiding, as time passed, gradually he required less rest and sleep, and his mind became more active. Little by little his phantoms gained hold on him, and at length, but for the saving power of his dreams, they would have claimed him utterly. How many times he had said to himself, I am an intelligent man. I am not crazy. I am in full possession of my faculties. All this is fancy, imagination, conscience. I have no work, no duty, no ideal, no hope. And my mind is obsessed, thronged with images. And these images naturally are of the men with whom I have dealt. I can't forget them. They come back to me hour after hour, and when my tortured mind grows weak, then maybe I'm not just right till the mood wears out and lets me sleep. So he reasoned as he lay down in his comfortable camp. That night was star-bright above the canyon walls, darkly shadowing down between them. The insects hummed and chirped and thrummed a continuous thick song, low and monotonous. Slow running water splashed softly over stones in the stream bed. From far down the canyon came the mournful hoot of an owl. The moment he lay down, thereby giving up action for the day, all these things weighed upon him like a great heavy mantle of loneliness. In truth, they did not constitute loneliness. And he could no more have dispelled thought than he could have reached out to touch a cold bright star. He wondered how many outcasts like him lay under this star-studded, velvety sky across the fifteen hundred miles of wild country between El Paso and the mouth of the river. A vast wild territory, a refuge for outlaws. Somewhere he had heard or read that the Texas Rangers kept a book with names and records of outlaws, three thousand known outlaws. Yet these could scarcely be half of that unfortunate horde that had been recruited from all over the states. Duane had travelled from camp to camp, den to den, hiding place to hiding place, and he knew these men. Most of them were hopeless criminals, some were avengers, a few were wronged wanderers, and among them occasionally was a man, human in his way, honest as he could be, not yet lost to good. But all of them were akin in one sense, their outlawry, and that starry night they lay with their dark faces up, some in packs like wolves, others alone like the gray wolf who knew no mate. It did not make much difference in Duane's thought of them, that the majority were steeped in crime and brutality, more often than not stupid from rum, incapable of a fine feeling, just lost wild dogs. Twain doubted that there was a man among them who did not realize his moral wreck and ruin. He had met poor, half-witted wretches who knew it. He believed he could enter into their minds and feel the truth of all their lives, 
the hardened outlaw, coarse, ignorant, bestial, who murdered as Bill Black had murdered, who stole for the sake of stealing, who craved money to gamble and drink, defiantly ready for death, and like that terrible outlaw, Helm, who cried out on the scaffold, Let her rip! The wild youngsters seeking notoriety and reckless adventure, the cowboys with a notch on their guns, with boastful pride in the knowledge that they were marked by rangers, the crooked men from the north, defaulters, forgers, murderers, all pale-faced, flat-chested men not fit for that wilderness and not surviving, the dishonest cattlemen, hand and glove with outlaws, driven from their homes, the old, grizzled, bow-legged, genuine rustlers, all these Duane had come in contact with, had watched and known, and as he felt with them, he seemed to see that as their lives were bad, sooner or later to end dismally or tragically, so they must pay some kind of earthly penalty, if not of conscience, then of fear, if not of fear, then of that most terrible of all things to restless, active men, pain, the pang of flesh and bone. Duane knew, for he had seen them pay. Best of all, moreover, he knew the internal life of the gunfighter of that select but by no means small class of which he was representative. The world that judged him and his kind judged him as a machine, a killing machine, with only mind enough to hunt, to meet, to slay another man. It had taken three endless years for Duane to understand his own father. Duane knew beyond all doubt that the gunfighters like Bland, like Alloway, like Sellers, men who were evil and had no remorse, no spiritual accusing nemesis, had something far more torturing to mind, more haunting, more murderous of rest and sleep and peace, and that something was abnormal fear of death. Duane knew this, for he had shot these men. He had seen the quick, dark shadow in eyes, the presentiment that the will could not control, and then the horrible certainty. These men must have been in agony at every meeting with a possible or certain foe more agony than the hot rend of a bullet. They were haunted, too, haunted by this fear, by every victim calling from the grave that nothing was so inevitable as death, which lurked behind every corner, hid in every shadow, lay deep in the dark tube of every gun. These men could not have a friend. They could not love or trust a woman. They knew their one chance of holding on to life lay in their own distrust watchfulness, dexterity, and that hope, by the very nature of their lives, could not be lasting. They had doomed themselves. What, then, could possibly have dwelt in the depths of their minds as they went to their beds on a starry night like this, with mystery and silence and shadow, with time passing surely, and the dark future and its secret approaching every hour? What, then, but hell? The hell in Duane's mind was not fear of man or fear of death. He would have been glad to lay down the burden of life, providing death came naturally. Many times he had prayed for it. But that overdeveloped, superhuman spirit of defense in him precluded suicide or the inviting of an enemy's bullet. 
Sometimes he had a vague, scarcely analyzed idea that this spirit was what had made the Southwest habitable for the white man. Every one of his victims, singly and collectively, returned to him forever, it seemed, in cold, passionless, accusing domination of these haunted hours. They did not accuse him of dishonor, or cowardice, or brutality, or murder. They only accused him of death. It was as if they knew more than when they were alive, had learned that life was a divine, mysterious gift not to be taken. They thronged about him with their voiceless clamoring, drifted around him with their fading eyes. End of chapter.